0: Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 52. Today we'll be reading Psalm 52, 53, and 54. Each of these psalms has a short biographical ascription. Gordon Wenham tells us that most of the biographical headings are found in the second Davidic collection, which runs from Psalm 51 through Psalm 52. These psalms exemplify problems that the pious person may experience, and they invite him like David to overcome life's crises with the help of his psalms and with God. Closed quote. So the Psalms self-identify as typical or as paradigmatic. This is the sort of stuff that happens in the life of faith, it says. And when it does, you should reach out to God in this way. Does that make sense? Hear then the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Beginning actually at the ascription before verse 1. To the choir master, a maskil of David, when Doeg... The Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. The reference there is to the story told in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. Uh, You remember perhaps that David and Jonathan had come up with a plan to determine whether or not King Saul was truly trying to murder David. David at this point was one of Saul's military commanders and had been winning many important victories for the people of Israel. By this point in the story, he had already been anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. That happened back in chapter 16. Whether Saul knew of that or not, we don't know. But we do know that Saul became terribly jealous of David's courage, his success, and accompanying fame. So, he began to plot his death and downfall. Jonathan learned of it and told it to David, and David Fled. He went to Ahimelech the priest and asked for food and supplies. Ahimelech assumed that he was on a mission from King Saul, and David did not disabuse him of that notion. He took bread, supplies, and the sword of Goliath that was stored there, and he departed. But, as 1 Samuel 21, verse 7 says, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's herdsmen. When Saul discovers that David was missing, he flies into a rage. He demands to know where he was. No one came forward until Doeg the Edomite. 1 Samuel 22, 9 to 19 tells that story. It says, then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as to this day?" Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servants or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall Surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day. 85 persons who wore the linen ephod and Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So Dog the Edomite is the one who betrayed David and who murdered an entire city of priests. He butchered the very people who had helped the Lord's anointed. And this is the psalm that David wrote in reflection. I think it'd be a good Psalm to pray on behalf of the persecuted church. I think you could pray this for the pastors arrested and disappeared in China, or for those sent to labor camps in North Korea. You could pray it for the Christians in India who are handed over by their neighbors to Hindu nationalists. You could pray it for Christians in South Sudan. We begin reading at verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly." There is a sense in which this psalm is a reflection of the wisdom presented to us in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 talks about two men, two typical people, one wicked and one righteous. Listen to what that psalm says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree So much of wisdom in the Old Testament is about playing the long game. Wicked people may prosper for a moment. Some of their schemes may even devour the righteous. But the wicked will not stand in the judgment. God will show up and he will wipe the wicked off the board. And the righteous, those who have made God their refuge, will be vindicated and restored and rewarded on that day. You can pray for that. You should pray for that. On behalf of your persecuted brothers and sisters. That's why this psalm is in the Bible. Thanks be to God. Now, the RMM plan has us reading three psalms today, so we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit as we begin reading Psalm 53. Now, before we begin, I should mention that if this psalm sounds familiar to you, it is because you've read it already. It is almost identical to Psalm 14, so much so that many commentators offer no separate commentary on it. They just say, as Calvin did, see Psalm 14. I'll meet him halfway on that and and just be a little more concise than I might otherwise have been, but I generally operate under the assumption that people leak, so better to err on the side of repetition. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription, and then proceeding to verse one. To the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskil of David. Now, we don't really know what the word maskil means, but we assume that it is some sort of musical or liturgical notation. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. The Hebrew word translated as fool there is nabel, and it means literally to wilt, to fall away, and to fail. You, you should remember that from our reference just a moment ago to Psalm One, right? The righteous is planted. He or she endures, but the wicked are not so. They fade away, right? That's the whole idea in this word fool. Again, so much of biblical wisdom is about playing the long game. Fools are those who flower and flourish only for a moment. But then because they are fools, they suddenly begin to wilt and fall and fail. And ultimately, they're not remembered. This is the name given to Nabal, the first husband of Abigail, David's wisest and most virtuous wife. Nabal was a fool. He did not take the long view and his fortune was suddenly reversed. So it is with all those who deny God. That is a very short-sighted and ill-fated decision to deny God. In Romans 1, Paul says that it is also a willful decision For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, wicked, foolish people suppress what they know about God. They try and convince themselves that there is no God so that they can live however they choose. Matthew Henry says of this fool, he cannot satisfy himself that there is none, but he wishes there were none, and pleases himself with the fancy that it is possible there may be none. He cannot be sure there is one, and therefore he is willing to think there is none. Closed quote. That is a foolish and dangerous gamble. Verse 2. God looks down from heaven. On the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You may recognize those words as being quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3. Paul condemns the world with these verses, Jews and Gentiles. He says, The world in general has become foolish, working together, conspiring together to deny God in order to dethrone God and to become gods unto themselves, deciding good and evil. Verse four, have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God, right? God says, how can you be so smart and so dumb at the same time, right? That's a good question. How can we be so smart at some things? We can make 3D printers and we can land a spacecraft on the moon, but we cannot or will not answer the most foundational questions of all. Why is there something rather than nothing? And why are things now not the way we sense they should be? We have no time for those questions, but we are fascinated with every step forward in smartphone technology. (laughs) Fools. Verse 5. There they are. In great terror, where there is no terror, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. You see, when you don't know God, you don't know what to be afraid of. And it's not as though you end up less afraid. You just End up more afraid. A universe without God, without purpose, without point, is terrifying. If God isn't in control, then who is? What is? That's a scary thought. Verse six. Oh that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And the only solution to this universal madness is a great saving work from God. Luther said, This psalm at the close gives a prophetic declaration concerning the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. You can pray this psalm when you see a world gone mad from denying its creator. You can pray that God would open eyes and unstop ears and soften hearts to receive the implanted and saving word of Christ. Thanks be to God. We've got one more psalm left, Psalm 54. And it too has a biographical ascription. It says, To the choirmaster with stringed instruments, a maskil of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, Is not David hiding among us? Now, this happened twice, actually. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 23 and also 1 Samuel 26. This, then, is a good psalm for when you feel like people you don't even know are out to get you and willing to believe the worst things about you. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse one. O oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O oh God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. Now, before you adopt this prayer as your own, Calvin has some very useful counsel. He says, in asking the divine protection, it is indispensably prerequisite. We should be convinced of the goodness of our cause as it would argue the greatest profanity in any, to expect that God should patronize iniquity. I think that is well said. Sometimes people are against us because we're wrong and our views would be destructive if widely adopted. Sometimes they're against us because we're jerks. It is possible to be right and still a jerk. But David is neither of those things in this case. He is a loyal soldier and the Lord's anointed, and he has done nothing but seek the expansion of Saul's kingdom. Therefore, for anyone to speak ill of him or to seek harm for him is unjust. So you have to be in that place to pray this prayer as your own. Verse 3. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. I love what Plumer says here. He says, whatever makes us feel our entire dependence on God is good for us. Now, I don't know if David would have agreed with that. I think he probably would have. Certainly, he says something like that in Psalm 119, verse 71. But in the moment, he was feeling the sting of this betrayal. And he did what God's people should do in such a scenario. They should appeal to God for justice. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. A believer entrusts his or her case to the Lord. The Lord sees and justice will be done, but not by you. He will return the evil to my enemies, David says. In your faithfulness, O God, put an end to them. See, you can pray for justice. You can pray for recompense, but you cannot seek it through your own means. Verse 6. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Scholars debate as to whether David wrote this psalm in the moment or in reflection, meaning, is he speaking here prophetically, God will deliver me from every trouble, or retrospectively, God did deliver me from every trouble. I don't suppose it matters in the end. I imagine that David prayed arrow prayers in the moment and then later, when time permitted, wrote them down as settled psalms. I don't know that. No one does. But it just seems natural and reasonable to assume that. So the immediate and the reflective likely intermingle in these psalms. The point, however, is clear. Gratitude is the appropriate response of a delivered people. Old Testament and new, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you are interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. Of course, the easiest way to make use of all the material we have at Into the Word is is by getting a hold of our app. You can find that at the Apple App Store or Google Play. And it very helpfully organizes all the materials that we've produced over the years. You can also connect with us on Facebook, and I hope that you do that. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements, conversation starters. I'd love to see you there. And I hope to see you again real soon, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.